This episode of the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by Vortex Optics. With a wide array of choices and an industry-leading, unlimited, unconditional lifetime warranty, Vortex Optics can provide you with equipment that you'll be comfortable taking anywhere under any conditions. Learn more about their entire range of binoculars and scopes at vortexoptics.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. I usually mostly try to avoid direct references to political stuff here, to overtly political stuff here, border wall aside, of course, because there's usually enough going on in the birding world that I can sort of put it aside. And look, I realize that that is my, perhaps our privilege. But recently, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, under the auspices of the current presidential administration, have suggested some changes in the interpretation of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act that, while not entirely unexpected, are pretty awful. But it's, you know, the way that they have gone about it that really grinds my gears and sort of exacerbates the awfulness. So I'm going to wade into it a little bit here. For a little bit of context, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act is a piece of legislation that is over 100 years old, and it prohibits the unlawful take of any North American bird. So you can't capture, kill, possess, import, export, etc. any native birds or bird parts on the continent. There are some regulatory exceptions, but that is the gist. And in practice, this means that fines are frequently imposed for violators, be they sort of people who poach eagles or people who intentionally move osprey nests, or in recent years, what is called incidental take, which means that if you kill birds through negligence during an otherwise lawful activity, you are liable to be hit with a fine. For instance, oil spills, failing to cover waste pits, coal, ash spilling into rivers, etc. It should be said that the MBTA has never been used as the sole statute when prosecuting somebody. Usually it's like an add-on. Right. So, for instance, when regulators were determining how much BP needed to pay with regard to the Deepwater Horizon disaster, violations of the MBTA were added to the already hefty sum levied against them. So, as you can imagine, corporate interests, especially extraction industries, have had the incidental take provision in their crosshairs for some time. And I should point out that this is not law per se. It's sort of an interpretation of this law. So one that I certainly feel is in the spirit of the original law. I know I'm not alone in that. But if the last few years have taught us anything, it's that the norms that are not legally binding are going to be challenged. Uh, and in some cases, even norms that are legally binding are going to be challenged. So we've been in fear of this norm being challenged for some time. But Nate... You are probably saying, why didn't we eliminate this loophole when we had the chance? Well, that is a great question. And as an answer that is admittedly unsatisfying, I will sort of wave my hands in the general direction of our current intractably polarized political system and say, eh. So I, I don't want to sound super cynical, though I tend to be sometimes. But you, you know the saying, in the heart of every cynic is a discouraged idealist, blah, blah, blah. And that which can be changed by executive fiat can be changed back by another more bird-friendly executive's fiat, and hopefully codified by a bird-friendly Congress. So if you need a goal to shoot for, providing you have the proper permits, obviously, that, that is your goal. 
But what has galled me most recently is the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's recent announcement of this rule change to allow this incidental take and the subsequent public comment period. So the press release that they put out less than a week ago includes at its end a list of quotes from supporters of this change. And that is unprecedented to attempt to move the dial this way, let, let me tell you. And I'm speaking as a veteran of many a public comment period. And these quotes, these quotes, they are a hodgepodge of random public officials, including bizarrely the county commissioner of Johnson County, Kansas, which if you know that part of the world, that's, that's sort of like the posh suburbs of Kansas City. So why this person would have an opinion on the MBTDA worth the contents of a coal ash filled pond is completely beyond me. But, but let me just read to you the associated groups quoted here that are ostensibly good faith actors, right? So there is the American Energy Alliance, the National Mining Association, the National Stone, Sand, and Gravel Association, the National Association of Home Builders, the American Farm Bureau Association, which you will be shocked to know doesn't actually represent family farmers, but the, the agribusiness industry. Consumer Energy Alliance, the National Ocean Industries Association. This is all under a section called what they, they, you know, quotation marks. You can see them. I'm making them right now. What they are saying. Oh, and, and the last quote is a distillation of perfect bug nuttery. Dan Lawson, Larson, sorry, Dan, uh, Wyoming State House representative. And I quote, this is what he says. I have heard of oil producers going into hiding, worried that they may be put in prison by the regulators. In what world does this happen? Right? Is this like Earth 2? Will someone please think of the poor oil producers in hiding, ashamed to be showing their faces, wearing masks, elaborate costumes, maybe a ghillie suit, skulking around the country club in fear of the long arm of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service? you know, who will get to it whenever they finish eradicating the Phragmites from the visitor center pond. So approximately never. This is insanity. It's insanity. Anyway, there is a 45-day public comment. It ends on March 19th. The link is in the show notes. Please use it. Tell them what you are saying. Feel free to make up an advocacy group since that matters. May I suggest the World Teal Foundation or the Organization for Marbled Godwits if you need an acronym that really sells your disgust with all of this. On the show today, let's talk about positive progress. The Queer Birders of North America has been for two decades about making birding better for people who have historically been marginalized. I, I talk about how it came to be and why it's still important with QBNA leaders Michael Redder and Jennifer Reisinger. But first, your rare birds. This is your rare bird focus for the end of January, first bit of February 2020. We have some first records to report this time around, starting with a young ivory gull seen at Flathead Lake in western Montana. This arctic species has a bizarre habit of showing up in really odd places, especially in the last few years. But there is some concern that climate change may be driving these exceptional records as they sort of counterintuitively head south to follow the cold weather. Even so, the interior west is pretty unusual, though there are records in the not-too-distant past from southern Alberta, eastern Washington, and South Dakota. 
In Maryland, that state's first record of black-chinned hummingbird was first seen in mid-January at a feeder in St. Mary's County. Western hummingbirds in the east of the continent in the winter is not a terribly new phenomenon, but what began a few decades ago with rufous hummingbirds is now expanding to other species, with black-chinned being one of the more common other-than-rufous species to turn up. That is about it for rarities in the ABA area for the period. For all you can handle, please check out the Rare Bird Alert hub on the ABA website. Brand new. You can get all the stuff there. You can find it at aba.org slash RBA. You can also find lots of rare birds at the ABA's Rare Bird Alert Facebook group. That is facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare or on a rarity Twitter feed at ABA Bird Alert. Those of you who listen to this podcast regularly know that I am really interested in the birding community and how it manifests in different ways for different people. And I'm joined today by two people who have been doing that sort of thing for quite a while. The Queer Birders of North America, QBNA, has been a fellowship group for LGBT plus birders and allies for some time now. And with me are two leaders of that group, my ABA colleague, Michael Redder, recently installed editor of the journal North American Birds. Welcome, Michael, and congratulations for that. Thank you very much. And uh, Jennifer Reisinga of San Mateo, California, formerly of the ABA's Recording Standards and Ethics Committee. Welcome, Jennifer. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. So uh, let's go ahead and, and start about how the group started. Um, was there something that you were seeing in the burning community that you felt sort of necessitated a group like that, or did it just sort of come about organically? Well, I think I was in on the very beginnings before Michael was, so I'll speak to that, which mm -hmm. is that um, in the late 1990s, when I became a more obsessive birder than I had been before, <laughs> um, I was meeting other LGBT folks out birding, but we were still afraid to publicly identify ourselves to each other. Mm -hmm. um, it was a very different time than now in that regard. And I started to think that it would be good to have an LGBT birding group regionally here living in the San Francisco Bay Area, but also nationally. Um, and around the year 2000, 2001, I started to search uh, to see if any such groups already existed. I did find an out uh, gay lesbian subchapter of a Sierra Club, but I found that the, hmm. what the Sierra Club hikes are about is climbing really fast and not stopping to look <laughs> right. at anything. And yeah. I am yeah. neither, I can't climb fast and I <laughs> simply stop and look at everything. So that wasn't going to work, but I did uncover that there was, that there were similar efforts underway in the UK where there was a gay birding club that had started in 1995 led by Andy Webb. And then Andy was coming out to visit California. So I, asked if we could meet up in Bird, and he brought with him Mal Hodges, who was the mastermind of a group called Gaggle in the Atlanta mm -hmm. area that was made up of gay and lesbian birders. And Mal and I hit it off right away and said, you know, let's combine what you've started in Atlanta with a national network that we can connect by email. So in a sense, mm -hmm. it was organic, <laughs> but it also required different levels of communication that right. all of which would be solved with today's social media. But it, <laughs> I was just going right. to say, it feels like that would be a lot easier now. <laughs> I to, think it would have uh, been very that. simple. But in 2002, we were still in the right. infancy of that kind of connectivity. Mm -hmm. And it was simply my, I've got to have a group like this that exists somewhere. Yeah. 
that got me to kind of bring together the different strands. And at that point, when we started to get an email group going in July of 2002, those initial emails contained a lot of a very familiar theme in LGBT existence, which is, I thought I was the only one. You know, when people were feeling kind of isolated and alone and depending on where they were located, afraid to ever come out to anybody in their birding community. And so this was a, a kind of remarkable for me as a very out person in the Bay Area to see just how this was going to create th- this kind of networking. And, you know, so in that sense, we we got an email group going and the next thing, you know, people started meeting informally. We had one epic walk here in the Bay Area at uh, Mount Diablo, which is one of the birding hotspots locally. And then uh, there were similar meetings that started to spring up, in particular around the epic owl invasion year in Minnesota, which was the winter Mm -hmm. of of 2005. Um, There was an informal meetup that year, and that led to the idea that we ought to have regular formal meetings, even though we were going to put this together just as a group of friends. And so the Mm -hmm. first of those meetings was in Vermont in 2007. And, you know, somehow it came to mind that we should see a Bicknell's thrush (laughs) while we were there. (laughs) And so we all made the ascent and saw uh, the thrush. And at that point, we decided every two years would be good for a meeting. And from there, the group really took off. So that's a little bit about the beginning. And I guess you could say we've been around all the 21st century. We're kind of a 21st century thing. Yeah. How about you, Michael? How did you get involved in um, QBNA? Oh, good question. Um, I guess I was rather like Jennifer. I was hoping to meet more people like me. And I, I don't know how I heard about it originally, but I somehow found out about this email group that Mal Hodges was running. Um, and... So that was in like 2002, I think. Mm-hmm. And then shortly after I joined the email group, he said, um, you know, I really I'm I don't have time to keep this up anymore. Does anyone else would anyone be willing to take it on? And I said, yeah, sure, I'll do it. Um, and so <laughs> deputized. Into right. So, this, uh, <laughs> so 18 years later, I'm role. now I'm now helping <laughs> run the Facebook group along with Jennifer yeah. um, rather than running the email list, which is pretty much in a coma at this point. Well, that's sort of been the evolution of email lists, uh, generally speaking as well. (laughs) Yeah. And so, I mean, besides the Facebook group, like Jennifer mentioned, we, um, we have meetings, um, at least every two years, sometimes every year. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's definitely different than it was back in the email days. Um, we're, we're able to share lots of photos and stuff, um, when we travel, for instance, so Jennifer, you know, back when you started this this email list, how were how did people hear about it? How did people learn that this was a thing that they could be involved in? It was primarily by word of mouth mm-hmm. um, or by word of email. We did get a few small notices, like just a, a line here and there in in various birding publications. But we also got consistent support from some straight and mixed sources, such as the ABA itself, uh, both Mm -hmm. Jeff and and Liz, once they were on board in the leadership in the early years of the decade we just completed, um, and also Ken Kaufman um, and the uh, the biggest uh, week in American birding. Uh, Mm -hmm. One year, the festival actually did sponsor an LGBTQ reception. 
Yeah. And so that. we did get a lot of a lot of positive support from a lot of straight people along the way. Mm-hmm. And one result of that is that we have always said that QBNA is open to anyone who is uh, in the the named groups or who is an ally. We have never mm-hmm. been restrictive. And that was true even on that first field trip that I helped organize here in the Bay Area. We had one straight ally with us, you know, and, mm-hmm. and um, so that's been really important for us. In general, the birding, you know, the, the birding community tends to be both scientifically uh, literate and well-educated. And so I don't think that the sheer amount of prejudice was as high as in the general population. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it didn't exist. I'm saying that the percentages sure. were a little bit different. You know, that, that is something that I did want to ask you about. Like, do you think that, that birding as a hobby is the sort of thing that sort of encourages these sort of affinity groups or, or subgroups? Um, I think birding still has some problems with issues of diversity in general. Um, sure. And yeah. that includes, you know, certainly dimensions of class and education and language and mm-hmm. race and, and so on. But on the LGBTQ issue in particular, I think that we have, everyone in the group has had some instances of encounters with homophobia, both in regular life and in their birding sure. life. But it hasn't been as arched or exclusionary when it comes to birding as it has been, say, in other areas of life. You know, I mean, no one is afraid that their bird sighting isn't going to be accepted or looked at seriously merely on the basis mm-hmm. of their sexuality. I mean, I, I don't at least I don't know. Maybe, Michael, you have I've never heard a story like that. Um, and so I think in that in this particular regard, the birding community can say that it it had some advantages over the general population. That didn't mm-hmm. mean, though, that there weren't moments. And again, I can remember right. back in the 90s, especially, and the early O's, moments in the field when somebody, you know, who I didn't know well, say on a Christmas bird count, outed themselves as a uh, as a, a conservative Christian, and I just was like, "Okay, watch your pronouns for the rest of the day in terms of referring to my partner," you know. <laughs> and and um, and one such person actually contacted me later and said, "I think you misunderstood. I'm an ally," you know, because she knew that. I mean, I think she could detect that something had stiffened in me <laughs> when she I beat herself yeah. as a, as an evangelical. So it's uh, it's one of those things that felt so different when we formed the group than it does Mm -hmm. now. And now what's needed, I think, is a lot of support in particular for our our, uh, transgender members who are undergoing Mm -hmm. a a huge leap in recognition of their lives, but also, therefore, a much larger risk in terms of backlash. from their critics and their the and the ignorant who don't understand them, uh, and mm-hmm. so that's become a, I think a more front burner issue than it was at first. Uh, and I also think that the marriage issue has uh, that that marriage equality has created some um, some changes. Uh, I was on a trip recently where my wife and I were the only 
LGBT couple on the the trip, but we would make jokes about being in the married van, you know, things like that. And <laughs> and again, our our straight married allies got it, and I think that it's changed the right. discourse. Um, yeah, to some extent, it's like now we're we're all yeah. too normal sometimes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it is amazing how in the last twenty years that has that has changed uh, and and almost universally for the better. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and I think yeah. it it should give us hope that there are are other prejudices and other inequalities that can be overcome. Um, you know, again, I I did not expect the changes to happen this quickly in my lifetime, even mm-hmm. though I was fighting for yeah. the changes. <laughs> So I'm yeah. happy to see it. And I think that the work of an affinity group like QBNA, that in in every facet of, of society, little groups like this have made a difference. And yeah. um, and again, I do I do want to thank both our I mean the other interesting thing that, let me just pull back here for a second, which is I mentioned all of our straight allies. But one of the things that was really fascinating to me as the group started to develop and truly expand in membership with these trips. So through 2007 and 9 and 11, when we were having some of the larger trips, what was astounding to me was the sheer number of, of high-level birders, famous birders, people who you know, are, are uh, highlighted in magazines like Birding, <laughs> who, mm-hmm. were, um, who were LGBTQ and who were willing to be out, at least in within our group. And of course, that includes um, my partner today on this podcast, Michael Redder, um, mm-hmm. that, uh, that we, um, we really did have a number of key people. Uh, and that in a way, and we called it at that point, GBNA, but uh, QBNA provided a way for us to know each other and to see that we were at all levels of birding from rank beginners who just enjoyed seeing what came to their feeder to people who could be editing North American birds, you know? So, yeah. So Michael, I did, that is a question I did want to ask you. Uh, the name did change from GBNA to QBNA. What was the reason for that change? Yeah. Uh, that was that two years ago, maybe three years yes. ago, Jennifer. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, uh, we had a meeting in Albuquerque and, um, until that meeting, I was often the youngest person at meetings and, um, <laughs> I'm no spring chicken now at nearing 40. Uh, but at that meeting, we had some younger people in their twenties, um, who were, who were joining us and it became apparent that a lot of those people, they didn't identify as gay. They didn't identify as bisexual. They didn't necessarily mm-hmm. identify as transgender either. A lot of them identify as queer. And that's kind of the the new thing for the younger for the younger generation, especially the millennial generation coming up. Mm-hmm. And um, having the group named Gay Birders North America, we felt was kind of exclusionary. And we wanted to make sure that hmm. everybody from the LGBTQ family felt represented. So we made the change from G to Q to... Yeah, to just make sure that everybody felt felt more welcome. Because I remember one of the people who was attending that meeting, um, they said, "You know, before I talked to you, I didn't think I didn't think this was a place for me, as uh, hmm. this particular person identifies as non-binary and queer." But you know, hearing about the Gay Birders North America, it didn't seem to them that that was that was a group that that was for hmm. them. But I hope now that they don't feel that way. Yeah. 
And from a typographical perspective, it's very easy to change all your GBNA stuff to QBNA. <laughs> yeah. A little, <laughs> a little sharpie. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I think also it, it was a very important way to support our our, um, our trans and non-binary members and to uh, to be as inclusive as possible. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I was very happy with that change and one that also addresses the problem where there are lesbians who see G is the first letter, and they assume it's only guys. So that mm -hmm. also, oh, sure. uh, and we still have, you know, it's it's not as as bad as once it was, but there still is a gender imbalance um, mm -hmm. that leans more towards male than than uh, than female and non-binary. Yeah, well, that's certainly an issue that the burning community, as a whole, uh, is kind of right. addressing, dealing with, etc. You know, so who is welcome in this group? That it gets to a good question. Everyone. Everyone. The, on, the only thing, the, I would say the only stipulation is to be kind and be welcoming and be non-judgmental. I mean, really, mm -hmm. we have at, at our meetings, we have a, a fairly high percentage of straight allies who've come. I think the, the meeting that we had in Mexico, I think upwards of like 15 to 20 percent of the people who attended were, were straight mm -hmm. allies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we just want everybody to be kind and tolerant and that's it, really. Everybody's welcome. Yeah. In general, we found that, as as Michael said, as long as you are not coming in with a hostile agenda, you're welcome. Mm -hmm. um, and as long as you're interested in birds, we we do like sure. there to be some interest <laughs> in birds. Help. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Help, yeah. Otherwise, it's going to be very boring trips, no matter what you <laughs> right, identify exactly. as. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I know. People might want to just sit around and, and sit in the sun or something and not even yeah. identify the gulls. And we right. couldn't have that. <laughs> no, <Yeah>. absolutely not. <laughs> so, so what does the group do? You've talked about these trips. What kind of trips are you are you taking? Well, we've um, we kind of have a, a pattern that we've been that we've been using. Where every um, at first it was every other year, and we would have have a trip in the United States or Canada, and another trip in the United States or Canada, and then one further afield. So we did one in Chiapas in Mexico, um, but. Mm -hmm. During the during the meeting, we kind of run it like a little mini birding festival. So, you know, right. at dawn, we head out in vans or on buses and go to a birding site and generally have lunch in the field and come back to the hotel um, or wherever it is that we're staying by mid-afternoon, have a couple hours to, to be down and freshen up, and then all meet for, for dinner in the evening. Um, sometimes we have programs. Um, we had a, our last meeting was in Tucson um, two summers ago, and we had a program by, uh, by Jenny Duberstein, who runs the Snore mm -hmm. and Joint Venture there in Tucson and um, also runs the Young Birder program for the ABA. Yes, she's been on the podcast yep. a couple times. <laughs> and, uh, and Rich Hoyer also gave us a, um, also presented um, something about the birds of the area that we were going to be visiting. Mm -hmm. So, but we do, we also try to go back and forth between a more managed, a more expensive experience to be blunt, mm -hmm. um, where, you know, where there's, we're in a hotel conference center and, um, we're out on, on buses or vans and, you know, that can, that can get a little pricey and we mm -hmm. we're very cognizant of the fact that not everyone can afford that. And so we try to alternate those with more frugal experiences where um we did one in beaumont texas like that where you show up at this place by this time every day go out on the van and come back and i think mm -hmm. it was four days of 
field trips? Uh-huh. Yes, it was. Four days of field trips, and that was $300. Wow. Everybody got their own food or they went out to dinner on their own at night. And so that, that was like one of the more, one of the cheaper ones that we ran. Um, yeah. And, but contrast that to what we're doing later this year, which is in Panama. Um, we're run, we're working with the canopy family there. Um, mm-hmm. and that's, that's a more expensive trip, but the next one we do will be a cheaper one again. Um, and it will also be based in the U S or Canada. Yeah. You travel a number of places internationally, how do you choose which countries to go to? Because there are still quite a few places in the world that are actively hostile to gay and lesbian people. Do you choose places where you are more accepted as as tourists? Yeah, I, I, for me personally, I don't like to go anywhere where I could be put to death. Sure. Um, yeah. yeah. Reasonable. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's a preference. Um, yeah. But in yeah, we're not going to choose a country where our very presence as a, as an out group would be, mm-hmm. would make us criminally, you know, liable. Um, yeah. and within that though, our group has had many debates online, both in the old email group and now on the Facebook group about the ethics of gay birding travel and whether mm-hmm. we can make a difference by going to a country that is that perhaps has some bad laws and we can maybe you know help to be a wind of change for those places mm-hmm. or whether we should withhold our tourist dollars from those locations and use that as a lever to affect change and so that's been a pretty lively debate you know full as you can imagine a full range of opinions have been voiced yeah. on that uh, but when we're planning the trips we're uh, that the that the group will take we have been working with tour companies on those, and we would not do it if we thought it was going to place our members in any legal sure. jeopardy. That doesn't mean we, you know, obviously we, when you're traveling abroad, or for that matter, traveling in this country, you can't foresee all eventualities and all mm-hmm. hostilities. But um, certainly yeah, even, we have been careful. Yeah, and even then... Um, We've stayed. We've stayed within North America. Yes, we've left the United mm-hmm. States and Canada, but we had a trip in Mexico, and there's the one upcoming in Panama. Mm-hmm. And in general, in the New World, laws are pretty favorable and kind to us. Um, mm-hmm. There are some old, particularly in the Caribbean, it tends to be places yeah. that were former British colonies, like um, Jamaica and Barbados and Guyana, that still have some antiquated laws. But for the most part. We're pretty. I feel. I feel very safe traveling in most of in most of the New World. Mm-hmm. That's fortunate that there's so many good birds there too. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. Nice. You don't have to really compromise, which is nice. Right. But for a long time, at the beginning of the group, these trips were organized informally by mm-hmm. leading members of the group. Essentially, I mean, I, I take credit for being the principal organizer for the one that happened here in San Mateo. Um, Michael, I think you were very involved with. Uh, with Alan and a few other folks for the Badlands one in South Dakota. Yeah, and Doug Chapman um, also. And Doug Chapman. And Doug Chapman had also put together the one in Vermont. And Duluth, um, I think. Yeah, I think, right. I wasn't on the Duluth one. That was uh, earlier than my time, but for the travel, that is. But yeah, it was, uh, those were really highly informal. I mean, it was the the group was still in its infancy. Making the move into working with with tour companies and doing things that were more formal and a little bit pricier. Um, that is to my mind, a sign of some maturity on the part mm-hmm. of the group, you know, that we had come to a place where 
we had a large enough membership that we couldn't all meet in one place. Uh, you know, in other words, it, that it, yeah. I mean, you can run out of spaces on these trips now. Yeah, I'm that, I'm remembering uh, one now that I, I forgot about this that I hosted mm-hmm. in Central Illinois when I where I'm from when I still lived there, and I had a cocktail party in my one bedroom apartment. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> for like 15 people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. yeah. But what does happen instead is that there are some very strong friendships that have been formed out of the group yeah. by us all meeting. And it's created this remarkable network across the country. And so I know if I go to Arizona, there's three or four other members there um, who I've been on trips with before. And we love birding together. I go up to Seattle. I've got a dear friend up there who I met through the group. I go to Texas. I've, I've got Michael and Matt. And it's this is absolutely splendid. And to my mm-hmm. mind, one of the real, uh, shall we say, fruits of this group. Um, we have connected across, um, you know, kind of time and space and have that wonder of shared experience. And, and, uh, that's just made for a very special, um, a a very special part of my burning life. And I would add too, that in the early days, back in the, the O's and the early tens, it was necessary uh, mm-hmm. you know, for, for safety. And so on. you didn't just want to call some burger out of the blue and be right. stuck with them for the day and have them hate you, <laughs> you <know>? so, <laughs> simply for being who you are. So, right. You, you know, burgers, so you get out to some out of the way places, it would be a very long day. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that yeah. has changed so much earlier. Jennifer talked about how different it is than 20 years ago. One of the reasons that I, that I was interested in meeting folks in the group and originally in, in going on some group outings and stuff was that, um, it's not, it's not such a big deal now, but I, I remember once I was leading a field trip at a birding festival. Um, and it was, you know, it was pre-dawn, it was dark, everybody's on the, on the bus. And I heard someone tell a homophobic joke right behind me and I turned around mm. and looked and there were like, five or six straight couples who were asleep or, you know, someone's head was on someone's shoulder or holding hands. And I thought if I were on this bus with my partner doing the same thing, what would the reaction be? Yeah. And hmm. it's better now than it was then. But one of the reasons I think the group was so important was that originally is that we could go out and bird with people like ourselves and we didn't have to be on. We didn't yeah, have yeah. to have this facade that we were presenting. We could just be ourselves. Yeah, there's certainly something to be said for ridding yourself of those anxieties. Oh, yeah. That are kind of like, can really weigh on you. Oh, yeah, and it's, it's just, it's exhausting. Yeah, I'll bet. One thing that's been really cool and I'm very appreciative of is the support of organizations like the ABA. Um, something as simple as changing their logo in June to a rainbow for Pride Month is so empowering, especially for young people to see that and know that, know that we're welcome in that organization. Um, that that's the kind of thing that would have meant a world of difference to me back when I was back when I was younger. And it's great to see it now. And I, um, yeah, I'm very thankful to the leadership of the ABA for, um, for stepping forward and doing that. So where can people find out more information about QBNA? So if you, if you are interested in joining, please look up our Facebook page. Um, and I'm hoping you can include the, a live link to that. Um, Absolutely. And yes. uh, if you just put in um, QBNA, it comes up right away. 
uh, into Facebook. Right. And um, yeah, it is good if you want to join because uh, we do um, we do vet new members um, that you include something about birds, <laughs> right? So that you're in some other group in which birds are involved. That helps us. Oh yeah, that helps you get in. That way, I use that too when I'm doing yeah. Stuff yep. as well. So uh, thank you, Jennifer and Michael. Uh, you can get more information about QBNA at their Facebook group. There'll be a link to that in the show notes, but QBNA on Facebook will get you in the right place. And uh, please have fun at those events coming up. They sound amazing. Thank you again. Thank you, Nate. Thank you, Nate. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. You know how it goes. We are a membership organization, and the best way to support this podcast and the ABA is to become a member. You get great magazines, access to discounts from our friends and sponsors, and the knowledge that you are helping to support the birding community in the U.S., in Canada, and in around the world. Learn more at aba.org slash join, or check out our e-memberships at aba.org slash e-member. Special shout-outs are in order Four, Elizabeth Harding of Flagstaff, Arizona, Daniel Del Vecchio of Scarsdale, New York, Karen Bell of Woodbridge, Virginia, Adam Picos of Santa Rosa Beach, Florida, Caitlin Lenahan of Fairbanks, Alaska, Christopher Grubbs of Raleigh, North Carolina, Emily Reeser of Fernandina, Florida, Jason and Audrey Vicks of Chicago, Illinois, Emily Wynn and her family of Lincoln, Nebraska, Cynthia Gray of Chicago, Illinois, Jeffrey White of Knoxville, Tennessee, and William Wise of Athens, Georgia, all of whom joined the ABA recently and noted the podcast as a reason why. Thank you all for that. Hey, you can also go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating or review. It does provide us with some great feedback, helps other bird people find us. Thank you in advance for that as well. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. He's also a big fan, leading member of the National Association of Sora Calling Absent Recordings, which I'm sure won't cause any confusion whatsoever. Technical production is by John Lowry, a founding member of the Society for Calibration of Recorders Using Broken Junk, Ann Arbor Youth Chapter. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley with permission from the Royal Organization for Sound Editing, Audio Technology, at Sonic Proofing on Optimal Noise Buffering International Limited Liability. Why is a French word in the middle there? I have no idea. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. Hope everybody out there enjoys their birding this week. That is, of course, blanket identification with range and distribution in non-identifiable goals. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.